Did Don Draper really buy the world a Coke? Did Tony Soprano really die or just order more onion rings? The finales of our favorite shows can make us argue, make us cry, and make us crazy. From Spotify and The Ringer, I'm Andy Greenwald, and this is Stick the Landing, a new podcast where we'll be telling the story of modern TV backwards, one fade out at a time. Find Stick the Landing on Wednesdays on the Prestige TV feed, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode is about the science of slowing down the aging process and why one biotech company has found some success doing this with dogs. Last November, the New York Times reported that a company called Loyal had reached a milestone in the development of safe life extension drugs for our pets. In a letter sent by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to Loyal, the FDA said, quote, the data you have provided are sufficient to show that there is a reasonable expectation of effectiveness, end quote. That meant they believe Loyal has met a requirement for fast-tracked authorization for animal drugs. The drug they developed, which is called LOI-1 or L-O-Y-1, works to slow the aging process in large breeds like Mastiffs and Great Danes. The drug is not available yet and the FDA has not approved it for use, but it's gotten just about as far as anyone has in getting the FDA to approve a life extension drug for any animal. The Times announcement made quite a stir. At the Emmys this year, the showrunner of the award-winning Beef on Netflix said this, Everything I do is for my three dogs, so um, <laughs> the uh, Federal Drug Administration, if you could please fast-track that uh, canine anti-aging pill, that would be so lovely. Uh, thank you so much. Now, life extension science is as exciting to me as it is broadly controversial. If you're an advocate of this kind of work, you'll say, who could possibly be against extending their dog's life from nine to 10 years? Who could possibly be against extending their parents' lives by five or 10 years? especially if what you're extending are good years. Health span, not just lifespan. 
Indeed, the podcast and YouTube sphere is dense with people testing, promoting, and often dramatically overpromising the benefits of everything from bullshit supplements to non-bullshit but still somewhat unknown drugs like rapamycin. But in my experience, there is something about the subject of longevity and life extension, and maybe it's just those terms, longevity, life extension, that gets under some people's skin. Their mind goes to cultural representations of the search for eternal life, which, if we're honest, is almost always associated with evil. Voldemort is obsessed with his immortality. So is Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars. The picture of Dorian Gray it does not turn out well for Mr. Gray. In one of my favorite movies as a kid, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the Nazi who first drinks from what he considers to be the cup of Christ, toasts to eternal life. He literally says, eternal life. Then he drinks from the cup and succumbs to what can only be described as rapid onset flesh-eating disease. So there is something in the storytelling spirit of humanity that seems to be telling us to fear those who search for extra years. Now, my response to these fears is always the same. No one's gonna live forever. Eternal life no matter what some of these people are promoting, is not in the cards for any of us. What we're actually talking about here in the science of longevity is the study of age-related disease and the effort to discover causal mechanisms that can allow us to slow down the aging process, to spend more of our scarce years feeling healthy and young. In this respect, I consider myself an enormous fan of life extension research writ large, even though I am very critical of many of its drug promotions writ small. Both my childhood dogs died before the age of 10. Both of my parents died before the age of 70. The concept of a scientific field devoted to identifying and solving the problems of age-related disease is absolutely thrilling to me. And that's why I'm very thrilled to have today's guest, the CEO and founder of Loyal, Celine Haliwa. We talk about her experience as a female biotech founder, the weird economics of pharma, the science of why big dogs die young, her theories for how to slow down the aging process in dogs both big and small, and the possibility of spillover benefits for humans from her research. Humans who would like to live a few more good years with their family and friends. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Celine Hollywood, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I want to talk to you about dogs. I want to talk to you about life extension. And first, I want to talk to you about being a female founder right now. Let's do a little personal history. Tell me what you were doing before you founded Loyal. Yeah. So I never thought I would start a company. There was no lemonade stand. I wasn't having a secret master plan of getting an idea or an insight so I could build a company and raise hundreds of millions of venture dollars or whatever it is. Um, I actually got interested in the space because really kind of my North Star from day one was how can we increase the free will of humanity? And one of the things that I think takes away free will the most is disease, specifically age-related diseases. And it was kind of this realization that there's many age-related diseases that you could get, you know, uh, diagnosed with today when it's not really anything anybody could do with you. 
do for you. Um, no matter how much effort, no matter how much time, no matter how much money, no matter how much care, just because they're such currently untractable diseases. Um, so I was in bio. I was doing, I was working in a lab for four years, five years, six years straight, just pipetting, working with mice, the whole thing. Um, I then went to Oxford. Um, then we pretty quickly dropped out, joined Lauren and Emily at the Longevity Fund. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but got the idea for Loyal um, and the conviction that I could do it. Uh, There is an impression, possibly unfair, but definitely relatively well subscribed to, that life extension is kind of bullshit, that there's a lot of people that have talked about life extension for many, many years, and there's lots of gurus in California and maybe around the world that have promised some version of life extension that hasn't exactly panned out for people because there is no one really living to 130, like barely anyone has ever lived to 120. So obviously the promises haven't exactly been realized. How hard is it to get people, maybe venture capitalists are the first line of credibility, but maybe there's other lines of credibility to talk about. How hard has it been to get people to take a project like this seriously? Well, so it's interesting because there's been a lot of investment and interest in lifespan extension, but I would argue in a lot of categories like what you're describing where, you know, there's lots of bold promises and, you know, reality is going to hit at some point. It's not going to give the end point that is being desired. And that net hurts the field. And that's what I've actually been, I'm quite passionate about is this idea that if you're going to go and kind of try to take the reins in this field, that you need to be, you know, having a higher degree of responsibility. You know, if you're working on a, a breast cancer drug and you fail, you know, nobody rethinks the legitimacy of targeting breast cancer. But if you're developing a longevity drug and it fails, people absolutely rethink the legitimacy of working on lifespan extension pharmaceuticals. And so this was something that I, I mean, honestly, has been a fear of mine from day one because, you know, we have done a lot of things right. And I think we are kind of hitting that stage of the roller coaster where it's more downhill and uphill. But for a long time, I was very cognizant that, you know, if something went wrong, it would reflect, you know, badly on the field, even though there's many valid reasons to fail that have nothing to do with the legitimacy of the idea. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the field doesn't think in that way. And it is quite easy to raise money if you're just saying like, oh, lifespan extension, it will happen in a year. Um, and so it's something I'm always combating in terms of how can we demonstrate our legitimacy. So like going for FDA approval, we could have developed a supplement and been on market for four years by now, right? But we from day one, we're saying we want an FDA-approved longevity drug. We're doing all our studies in the United States. We are self-subjecting to the highest and most rigorous and most objective quality bar uh, in the world. The one that many other regulatory jurisdictions follow. Um, and that was just one part of many of you know how we kind of tried to build in that commitment to legitimacy and doing the field right and showing that longevity is just as boring as you know cholesterol-lowering drugs. And why dogs? Because you can do... Well, there's a couple of reasons that we decided to go dogs first. Um, one is I am a huge dog person. I'm actually in um, Oaxaca right now. And there are senior street dogs everywhere. And it's going to take all my willpower <laughs> <laughs> not to take one home. Um, so it came with the dog side, right? But then also there's a, there's a logistics challenge <laughs> in lifespan extension, which is to begin and market and sell a drug for something, you have to show in a 
placebo controlled, phase three, FDA sanctioned, double blinded, clinical study that your drug does what you say it does. So you have to show it extends lifespan. And in a human, even the oldest humans, it could take a decade or more to actually show that reduction in early mortality relative to those treated. And so in a dog, you can see biological aging, aka kind of there's no like decently objective aging parameters, but let's say like as objective as they come, aging uh, biomarker, quote unquote, uh, parameters in about six months. And then you can see lifespan extension and, you know, depending who you ask, three to five years. And so it was a way to show definitive efficacy quicker. Um, and it's also a really important problem um, and a really important market to work on, which is kind of this Trojan horse, so to speak, to, you know, if we only... The Trojan horse metaphor doesn't really work here anymore. I was going to say, if we only build the Trojan horse, even if it doesn't enter the gates, that doesn't make sense. But basically, if we only do this, it's extremely valuable and extremely important to society, but also it sets us up well to do the uh, do human aging eventually too. Right. This is a beneficial Trojan horse in which the horse itself is dog life extension. And then the Greeks that come out of the horse is human life extension that might follow. I, I, I more or less pick up the metaphor. And then without it, the raising of the, the city. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Ho hopefully we don't have to metaphorically destroy Troy in order to make this happen. One of the papers that I find most persuasive in biology is a paper that Heidi Williams is a co-writer on, on the mystery of why don't we have more cancer prevention drugs? Almost all of the cancer drugs that we have are for late stage cancer. Where are the cancer prevention drugs? And she makes a version of exactly the point that you just made. If you are trying to develop a drug that, you know, I'm 37 years old. If you're trying to develop a drug that stops a 37 year old from getting, let's say, stomach cancer or pancreatic cancer in one's 70s or 80s, well, you have to wait. 40 years to get the relevant endpoint, which is I am still alive without that cancer in 40 years. That's incredibly expensive to do a clinical trial that takes 40 years, unbelievably expensive. Whereas a clinical trial on late stage cancer, if you're only trying to extend a sick person's you know, life by six months, one year, well, you only have to wait six months or one year. So to your point, to take that metaphor and make it about, you know, dogs and people, you, you know, dogs, I guess the cliche is, and I'm interested in, in whether this cliche is wrong, you know, that dogs' lives move seven times faster than a human life. So you need to wait seven times less to see if the life extension drug is having an effect. It becomes really, really important from just a time and cost perspective if you're doing the kind of clinical trials that are necessary to get FDA approval, which you're going for. Is that the same idea? Exactly. It's exactly the same idea. And I'd say another part that's especially relevant in the US is there's economic alignment with preventative medicine in dogs versus, you know, in humans is a bit of a bigger topic. There could be many podcasts just on this. But in general, reimbursement, um, economic incentives for preventative care, especially expensive preventative care, is just not. It's it's much more challenging in our uh, in our in the U.S.'s healthcare system. And in, in the U.K. is a little bit different. Obviously, you know, they're single payer healthcare systems. The way I kind of think about the dog owner relationship is each is a micro single payer healthcare system. Right? I own Della today, and I will own her for the rest of her life. And I care about her health today, and I care about her health in many years from now. And so I am economically incentivized to do whatever it takes to keep Della healthy today, but also to invest in preventative care so she stays healthy in the future. 
Um, that combined with the fact that it's a cash pay market. Um, so there is like some insurance mechanisms, but in the US, it's almost entirely cash pay. That was almost like romantic to me coming in because it was kind of like nobody wants to tell you, but the cogs of drugs, super cheap. So cheap, very low, very, very, very low. The, the actual material costs, not expensive. Now, everything else, you know, all the other failed drugs and the, you know, half a billion dollar clinical trials, like that gets like swatted into that too for a human. But I really love the idea romantically of developing a first in class drug that is something that people have never, you know, thought was even possible for. And it sounds like magical. That's also inexpensive. That's also, you know, financially accessible to the majority of Americans. Um, and that's when that just like in humans, like good luck. <laughs> We're going to talk about the medicine that you're developing in just a second. I do want to establish first some sort of ground basics about the science of dog longevity. I think most people understand that there is a relationship between a dog's size and its expected lifespan that small dogs live longer than big dogs. I think the average lifespan, there was a Times article that sort of listed like dozens and dozens of dog breeds and the average lifespan of a Havanese, which weighs less than 15 pounds is 15 years. The average life of a Mastiff is nine years or less. Do we have a basic understanding of why this is the case? Why small dogs live longer than big dogs? We have a very strong hypothesis, which is the, the baseline of Loy One, the first drug. And actually it was the baseline of what I started loyal around. Um, so you're exactly right. The bigger a dog is, the shorter their lifespan is. And at the extremes, we've got a 2x differential. So a chihuahua might live, you know, 15, 16, 17 years, while a Great Dane might live, you know, seven or eight years. And it's not just that they're, you know, living their normal life and then dropping dead at age seven or eight. They're actually aging fast. So a Great Dane will start going gray at age, you know, three, four or five will start slowing down and just literally is living what seems to be an accelerated aging trajectory within that um, duration that they are, you know, allotted, so to speak. And this is extremely abnormal. There is, as far as I'm aware, no other species where you see a 2x differential and expected lifespan within the species. You know, short humans don't live twice as long as large humans. And in fact, there isn't really even a, a size gene for humans, right? Like I couldn't sequence you and be like, oh, you're like, you know, six foot five and three quarters or whatever. Um, I'm definitely not six but, foot five. <laughs> I was like, I was like going to say five, six. And I was like, wait, don't install. <laughs> I'm also not five, six. <laughs> I am five, eight and three quarters, ma'am. Beautiful. Beautiful. You're taller than me. I, I am a, I'm a little, little one, but I won't be living... Uh, that much longer than the average, you know, six foot five person or six foot person or five foot eight person because there just isn't that relationship in humans. Um, and so when you look at the genetics of dogs, you can actually see once a dog and tell within about 10 pounds, basically like, you know, confidence interval being like how much they overfeed their dog, <laughs> how big that dog is going to be. And the reason is, is there's only about six genes that control dog size versus, you know, the many, many that control human size. And the aha moment for me in starting loyal is if you look at those six genes, four of them are in this growth hormone IGF-1 pathway. So they basically regulate the levels and the signaling of these little proteins called growth hormones that circulate in the blood and basically bind the cells and tell the cells, grow divide, grow divide, grow divide. And this was so interesting to me because this mechanism, specifically growth hormone IGF-1, which was really, really high in big dogs and really, really low in small dogs... Um, 
is actually the OG longevity mechanism. So it was actually the first genetic pathway that was shown back in the late 1980s that if you made a worm, a C. elegans, with low growth hormone IGF-1, uh, that it would live almost 2x longer. And conversely, if you make an organism with really high levels of growth hormone IGF-1, you get a big organism that lives a very short lifespan. Um, and this has been replicated over and over and over again across species. And there's even correlation data in humans, including, including Ashkenazi Jews centenarians have a genetic mutation. That means they have much lower IGF-1 signaling systemically. Now, of course, nobody does it's causative, but there's the fact that you have strong positive data in lower organisms and model organisms and in correlation data in humans suggests this might just be a foundational aspect of biology. Um, so to find that in the dog, I was like, oh my God, this is like the perfect place to start. The short lifespan of big dogs isn't inherent. It's a disease due to historical inbreeding for size. Right. So essentially, it's like over the last few hundred years, we have, through breeding dogs, created problems, create like a- haphazardly or even accidentally selected for at the at the sort of at the molecular level, IGF one to produce mastiffs and other big dogs. We weren't trying to do anything with IGF one. We didn't know it existed, but we were in the process of breeding bigger dogs, creating dogs that had more of this growth hormone that has a negative association with long lives. And now you're essentially trying to undo the breeding effects with your drug, right? It's like there's there's human action to create the dog breeds and now a new human technology to sort of unwind the problems created by the breeding. Is that essentially it? Yeah, that's exactly how I think about it. Basically, you know, dog breeds are artificial. They're human creations. And it's kind of the way to think about it is artificial evolution. And the hand of evolution only lasts from the birth of the animal to its uh, replication. I mean, the asterisks, right? But in general, it's about that animal that you've selected for breeding and passing on their genes. And so people back then didn't understand, you know, human (laughs) genetics. They were inbreeding themselves and they were also inbreeding their dogs. And it was super effective at creating big dogs or dogs that were protective or dogs that were super cute or whatever they were looking for. But this also selected for genetic mistakes because it was only to, oh, dog grew really big. Let me breed it with the other dog that grew big. So I get a puppy dog that grows even bigger. They weren't following and being like, oh, did I also select for something that in the late stage of life causes something negative, aka shorter lifespan. And so that's what we're trying to fix is maybe too strong of a word, but compensate for in these big dogs to give them a longer, healthier life. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match 
with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. Let's talk about the medicine itself. Um, your first drug, Loy One. Uh, before we get into exactly how far down the FDA obstacle course you've made it, give me a clearer sense of what exactly this drug does. What does Loy One actually do? Yeah, so we have two drugs actually for big dog short lifespan. Loy One is the first drug. Um, it's an injectable. It'll be there will be a three month and a six month version that basically you go to a vet. The vet kind of pops it in similar to getting a microchip or my dog gets an osteoarthritis injection um, every month, similar process. It releases a drug consistently over time. And basically what it does is it'll dampen down the growth hormone IGF-1 signaling in your dog, you know, somewhere between 30 to 50%, which we've shown in other studies to be sufficient to have uh, benefit on you know, age-related age changes in dogs. Um, we also, about a year ago, in licensed a pill version of this drug. It's a different active ingredient, but the same mechanism of action, same idea of reducing growth hormone IGF-1, but able to be formulated really conveniently into a small molecule, into a pill. So if somebody doesn't want to give an injectable or a dog's bouncy or they don't live near a veterinarian and can't go access it every time, um, they can have a daily pill that they can give their dog that'll look flavoring TBD, but you know, our other one is beef, so maybe beef. Uh, beef pill that's kind of similar to a tree that they can give every day to hopefully extend their dog's lifespan. If you're inhibiting a growth hormone, then if someone gives, say, their puppy mastiff or their puppy Great Dane this drug, are they inhibiting its growth as well? Yes, they should not do that. Um, so basically, the way to think about it is growth hormone is completely natural, quote unquote, and good. Well, it's good in any cases, right? Like there, you don't want to have too little. Having too little also causes bad things like that therapeutic window, right? But the idea is that, you know, relative to the, you know, size of the animal, so controlled for dog size, dogs, big dogs have a much higher concentration. That's really helpful for getting them to grow big. So we want them to grow big. I personally am a big, big dog person. <laughs> so let's let the dogs grow large. But then afterwards, you take it down to a concentration that's seen maybe in a, um, like an Aussie Shepherd, right? A, a dog that exists currently, that's healthy currently, that has a longer lifespan, um, but is still within the range that is seen in an animal, uh, seen in dogs. But yes, you don't want to go to a puppy. Um, you would have a medium Dane, micro Dane. <laughs> micro Dane. Which makes it sound better. It actually would be bad for a dog to do that. <laughs> so the, the, the US Food and Drug Administration has not approved Loy-1, but they have determined that it has a, quote, 
reasonable expectation of effectiveness. Help me understand what that means. Does that mean they approve of your trial methods or is it an indication furthermore that they believe the drug might actually extend the lifespan of large breeds, but they're not yet ready to approve it? Oh, it's... So the way to describe it is the FDA believes a drug has a reasonable expectation of effectiveness for extending the lifespan of large dogs. And that data is so reasonable, <laughs> let's say, um, that once we finish the safety and manufacturing aspects of the kind of submission to market and sell this drug, that data is sufficient to begin selling this drug for lifespan extension. So in other words, we have finished the effectiveness portion that is necessary to begin selling this drug for lifespan extension. Um, now that's for conditional approval. Um, so one of the other kind of why nows of loyal was the opening of this new regulatory pathway called expanded conditional approval, where you have to hit the exact same safety regulations, exact same manufacturing standards, but only reasonable expectation of efficacy. And that was really important because even in dogs, showing definitive lifespan extension would take about five years. And so this, what this pathway allows us to do is, um, you know, the drug has to be safe, the drug has to be manufactured the standards, we have to have really strong data to suggest it's going to do what we think it's going to do. And then we can conditionally market it, making it very clear that it's conditional approval, while we're running that pivotal lifespan extension study. And so that actually only became available in 2019. And that was one of the big things that kind of made, oh, shit, like this company is now possible, not only scientifically, but also candidly, like from a, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but from a funding perspective, which I'm not independently wealthy. I have raised investment for this company. It is very expensive to build a drug, even dog drugs. So it was very important to have a path to market that is um, reasonable and fits within a venture kind of fund uh, economics. Before we get to the economics, just two more questions about Loy One. First, I have to imagine that anybody, especially those with a large breed, are going to think timeline, timeline, timeline. What is a reasonable expectation for when, if things continue at the rate that you hope they continue, when is this drug going to be available? So this drug is on market or it's on track for 2026 approval. We have another drug um, that's for senior dog lifespan extension. So dogs of most sizes, most breeds who are already showing signs of aging. And that drug is actually on track for beginning of 2025 approval. We don't have the uh, reasonable attention of active disapproval yet, but basically the thing that actually determines a drug's go-to-market timeline of manufacturing. And I actually have it. No, I guess people aren't going to be able to see it because there's no video. But I carry the drug with me all the time. What you could say I am a drug dealer. Uh, just kidding. I don't give the drug to anybody after yet. <laughs> it's all the placebos. But I do carry them around. We have the commercial manufacturing done um, on this one. Or we believe it's done. Of course, it has been submitted. And so that drug will be on the market closer to 2025. And side effects? From what we've seen, the drug's extremely safe. Um, you mean, you, with, with any dog drug, you gastrointestinal distress sometimes when you start something new. Um, but we've had dogs eat many, many multiples of what they were supposed to at levels that, you know, if it was Tylenol or paracetamol or something would kill you or kill the dog and they were completely fine. Do you have a specific goal in terms of how long you're hoping to increase lifespan? Like, is there an interval of life expansion that you're aiming for, say, one year, or would even a small interval of life expansion discovered in the, in the phase three clinical trial count as a victory for you? So the victory, quote unquote, will be statistically significant extension. Um, and so that's all that the bar is. And the asterisk here is that it's not just lifespan, it's lifespan and quality of life. 
Um, right. So I, this is not what our approval is going for, but I think theoretically, if we only improve the quality of the life of the animal and we may, maybe it's only a quantitative lifespan extension of one month, but that, you know, normal lifespan plus one month is 20% healthier than it would have otherwise been. I think that is both a scientific success and a market success. Again, our label isn't designed to not show some degree of lifespan extension. Um, you have to kind of predefine what you're looking for to the FDA from like a scientific integrity perspective. But I do think that would be acceptable. Um, that's set scientifically. That said, um, we kind of base all of our statistical modeling around one year of healthier lifespan extension. We could detect shorter. We could obviously detect longer. Um, but you kind of have to put your like stick in the sand, so to speak, um, from a statistical perspective. Although this is the drug if you want to see it. Cool. I, I can see it, and indeed says Loy, and I think it says uh, well. I, I don't know how much it. It, it. it looks like it a, says eighty one. Um, it says eighty one. Oh, it it's says one of our, Loy it's the, Yeah, it's the it's the biggest dose we have. Several times while we've been talking, you've referred to the wacky economics of pharma. And while a lot of people working in tech are working on, you know, what I would call kind of commercialized innovation, the basics of their company already exists, and they're trying to build an audience for it. You're inventing something. Like there is, there's no category here. The FDA has never approved anything for dog life extension and you're trying to build it. Um, that means you have to raise a ton of money to fund all these clinical trials. It means there's a ton of expense before you even get a dollar back from consumers. I'm curious, you know, I've never talked to someone, I guess, from big pharma and you're kind of small pharma or like maybe medium-sized pharma, scaling pharma. What has surprised you about this space? What has surprised me in terms of like fundraising for it? Or what do you mean? About, about, I mean, like about the economics of it. Like as, as someone who came into this, being interested in the science and being interested in the end point of extending, you know, dogs' lives, but not having come up in like the pharmaceutical industry and sort of, you know, learning the ropes as you're going through it. You said something a couple of minutes ago that, that uh, I don't know if it entirely surprised me, but it, I think it's, a, it's an important point, which is that the cost structure in pharma isn't about the manufacturing of the pills themselves. Like the drugs are cheap. It's getting to the point when you've established you have a saleable and effective and safe drug that's really expensive. So I'm wondering if there's something about the economics of or mechanics of this sort of novel pharmaceutical in, in, innovation industry that you find is either has surprised you or you find to be counterintuitive for people that you talk to, where like they don't get this big thing about what it is that you do, but it's like old hat to you. Oh my God. Well, how, how much time do you have? Let's do five uh, no, minutes. <laughs> no, this is something I think about a lot because uh, a lot of the investors that we work with are often either deep tech or kind of consumer tech investors, and they often don't invest traditionally in pharma. Um, in part because the market is very different, right? We're going for dogs, biotech uh, inv investors only invest in human. But also something I've learned that was not intuitive starting is that loyal doesn't fit the economic model of the traditional biotech fund. And the reason being is that the traditional biotech fund is built off of a very different type of company than you know me or you might be used to kind of being in the valley and seeing tech companies growing up. And so one thing to think about is so to, to, to take a human drug to market, on average, is about a billion dollars, right? But it's actually very rare for a company to go from zero to spending a billion dollars and getting that drug on market. The way to think about kind of early stage biotech is it's externalized R&D for big pharma. And so it's all about cash to milestone, cash de-risking point. And that's why you'll see these companies that are in you know, early stage clinical trials that are years away from making money. 
um, actually being on the public markets because they're not betting, quote unquote, on revenue growth or whatever. They're betting on, oh, this phase two study is going to read out positively. And then Pfizer has a gap in their portfolio and they need a drug that's doing this or it's a next gen of that. So they're going to buy it and they're going to buy it for half a billion, a billion, five billion, whatever it is, right? And so it's much higher risk in certain ways because... And one of the things that's different about biotech VC versus a tech VC is their ownership requirements are way higher. You also have free monies that are lower than the amount raised. One, because it takes so much damn money to develop a human drug. A dog drug is much cheaper, about a tenth of the cost, um, which is one of the other reasons it's kind of fun to build it in this space. Um, but also because they are funding... Um, it's, it's, you can't will a drug to work. You know, If somebody has a hypothesis that there's a new way to do gene therapy, and they're wrong, that doesn't, it's done, right? And so you have to build that into your economic funding model. And so you can't be, you know, you need to basically make so much money from the episodic winner that you get to offset all of the losers that you have. And so a company like Loyal, like Loyal is not a single bet company. And we're just a thesis, like a thesis based company that there should be a drug that extends lifespan and health span in dogs. And if people want this and you can build a pharma brand that people love and this is a multi billion dollar market that's currently untapped. That's our thesis. And then we have. You know, that is almost certainly correct. It is almost certainly correct that you can extend a dog's lifespan as a pharmaceutical, and it's almost certainly correct that people will want it. Right. So then the question is, how do you do it? And so it's where we have three drugs. We're gonna, you know, expand out more. We've been very fortunate. Our three drugs have, you know, so far worked very well. Um, but any one of them could have failed and it wouldn't have invalidated the thesis that is loyal, right? And so that kind of model of it's more on traction to Getting to revenue to launch. That's the other thing we're doing differently is we're going to launch these drugs ourselves. We're going to, you know, I don't know. There are not that many good examples um, in at least the pharma side, the bio side, and definitely the animal health side of launching a drug and it being successful yourself. Traditionally, you would just go and like co license it with um, some big pharma. But that's one of the other reasons we were able to like raise from the set of tech bundle because in the economics of the product, not only the milestone unlocking of the product becomes relevant to the kind of economic argument I'm making to an investor of why it makes sense to invest in loyal now and why they can underwrite that we're going to be worth 10 to 100x in the future. Um, so that was kind of all over the place. But basically, I think a big thing is just really understanding the differences of what, what game you're playing, what game the investors are playing. Um, and it can be somewhat for me, like I didn't come, like I worked in venture a bit, right? But honestly, I've learned all of this from building loyal and from talking to hundreds of investors and failing on hundreds of pitches um, because it, I, that's how I kind of like coalesce. So like, oh, this is how I need to help people underwrite this company. We talked a bit about large breeds. Obviously, there's lots of people who have medium and small breeds that are interested in their dogs living a little bit longer. If IGF-1 is the predominant growth hormone in big dogs that you're targeting with LOI-1, it seems like you need a totally different mechanism to extend lifespans in medium and small dogs. So maybe talk to me a little bit about the, like just from a sort of conceptual level, like what kind of drugs you're trying to develop for medium and small dogs and how you're trying to extend their lives? 
the meta here, pulling back a little bit, is we really tried to pick drugs that it's one of the interesting aspects of the longevity field is there's been a lot of work. You know, some of it questionable, as we talked about at the top of this, um, but a lot of it not, because we're the academic sectors, where there's been a lot of mechanistic validation, there's been a lot of, you know, lifespan extension studies run in mice, lots of different, like, you know, you intervene at this portion of the pathway and that portion and that portion and that portion, like quantifying what happens. And that's all been done. And usually when you have proof of concept or something, some pharma company comes in or some VC comes in and they scoop it up and they create a company and they go down this whole path I just walked walked through. In longevity, it doesn't happen because there's no way to get a drug FDA approved currently, or maybe you could say there wasn't until Loyal came along, um, at least for dogs, they haven't done anything in human yet. Um, there's no like market for that, right? So you have all this like really interesting proof of concept data that's actually much more well validated than it would ever be for basically any other <laughs> disease area. Because people are just cycling on it and there's nobody picking it up and continuing the development in a privatized company. And so going in, my thesis was, we're not going to be spicy. I'm not interested in like super fancy schmancy, like aging, reversal, da 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 da. No. Like the baseline was me a drug that's extremely safe, as we've talked about. Like you need to be basically as safe as water. Like you can't do harm, right? It might not work, but we can't do harm. That was first. And then second was, we need to have the highest probability of success. And we're not going for maximized success. Again, we're going to have different generations of drugs that I'm sure we'll work on that. But right now, it wasn't maximizing you know, the radical lifespan extension of dogs. It's just like definitive lifespan extension. And so we started with big dog short lifespan because of that genetic link. Genetic links and genetic diseases are really interesting places to do innovative medicine because you have kind of a toehold on very, very complex biology. So like the first gene therapies were all in these genetic diseases, right? Like I, what I worked on in Oxford was a gene therapy or worked in a lab that was developing a gene therapy for chorioremia, which is a monogenic um, blindness disorder that people are obviously born with and become blind over 40. I used to kind of like the CRISPR work just being done. It's all in these like simple diseases, even with like BRCA2 mutations and breast cancer and genetic uh, drivers of Alzheimer's, like people start there because you can understand a disease a little bit better. And then you can like expand out and, and implicate that understanding to more wider classes, right? So big dog short lifespan was like the lowest, lowest risk way to go. The next then it's like, okay, well, what is the next most well-validated longevity mechanism that we think would be broadly applicable? Because you're totally right. Even though I am not a small dog person, we want to help all the small dog people. And maybe I will become a small dog person. My EA is a really cute small dog. So I'm slowly getting there. Um, slowly. But um, well, it's the next most well-validated that we think would work in dogs of most sizes. Um, and that was looking at the biology of caloric restriction. Um, so caloric restriction is actually the first intervention that was ever shown to extend lifespan back in the 1930s. It's been replicated many, many, many times um, from you know yeast, worms, all the way up into primates. Uh, I'm sure we have you know, mutual like VC friends or whatever, intermittent fast or caloric restrict. It's all for this idea of extending lifespan. And at a high level, there's a lot of these theories out there. But at a high level, the most like well-validated way caloric restriction works is by improving metabolic fitness. So any aging drug that you've heard of, which I want to set the record straight, we are not developing these drugs, but drugs like rapamycin, like metformin, like these classical drugs that are developed for longevity or proposed to be developed for longevity, these all work by improving the metabolic fitness of the organism. So our drug that will be for senior dog lifespan extension is targeting just kind of holistic metabolic fitness improvement. 
it's um and 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 so far like in dogs we have seen like very compelling evidence that it does just that obviously we haven't run the lifespan extension study yet but we did start it in december uh with boo the whippet um so that will hopefully establish a positive link there um so that was kind of how we thought about creating this this portfolio and we'll continue expanding that out my last questions are about the uh, proverbial Greeks inside of the Trojan horse, the degree to which your research is going to have spillover effects on human longevity. I guess there's a really fundamental question here that I do not know the answer to at all. Do dogs and humans die in similar ways? Like, is the portfolio of like death causes for dogs similar to that for modern humans, which by the way, is very different from humans like a hundred years ago. I was doing some research for the, the book that I'm writing right now. A hundred years ago, the most common ways that people died were all bacterial diseases. Like even when people got the Spanish flu, most people who got viruses died from bacterial infection from the virus. And so we invented antimicrobials, penicillin, et cetera. And now bacterial diseases are not even close to the number one cause of death in the modern or uh, developed world it's overwhelmingly things like cancer and cardiovascular disease. So um, I guess it's even hard to compare. It's like when I say compared to humans, it's like compared to which century of humans. But <laughs> maybe, you can, maybe you can take this question at like an abstract level. Do we have reason to believe that the mechanics of dog senescence are similar or different to the mechanics of human senescence? Yes, 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 yes. And that was really kind of the other, one of my core theses, um, is that the fastest way to develop human lifespan extension drugs is develop dog lifespan extension drugs first. And the fundamental reason is... There's actually a number of fundamental reasons, both biologically and logistically, capital, etc. But on the biological side, is dogs die of the same age-related diseases that humans do at approximately the same stage of their... Um, at the same rate as we see. The only big exemption is cardiovascular disease because, you know... Certain forms of cardiovascular disease, especially what humans get, can, tends to be environmental or diet or activity based. And dogs generally, you know, don't have McDonald's, um, don't sue me McDonald's, but <laughs> they do get cancer at similar rates and die at similar rates. They get degenerative disorders, uh, they get dementia, at Salta, they might get Alzheimer's, they get osteoarthritis. Um, and the most important thing is that they develop these diseases over time, right? You know, I do not have an acute age-related disease today. I am undoubtedly developing the foundations of the age-related disease that I will be diagnosed with in hopefully many decades from now. And that's because fundamentally diseases are age-related because they're degenerative and they occur over these decades. And so when you try to emulate that in a mouse, it's often acute, right? You'll like day zero, mouse is healthy. Day one, you give, you know, whatever drug to like kill certain subtype of neurons, day two, mouse has Parkinson's, right? Um, versus in a dog, a dog develops it naturally. A dog develops it in part due to environmental factors. A dog develops it because of behavioral patterns. And to be clear, with dog breeds, you also have increased, you kind of have these like founder populations of increased incidence of, you know, certain cancers, for example, in Goldens, which to my previous point is a great way to better understand those cancers. It's kind of a, a nub in again. But at a high level, if something is working for doggy dementia, you know, it's not one-to-one -to, -one to work for a human. But it is way more compelling evidence that it might be biologically relevant to how humans get dementia than it might be if you cured mousy dementia, which we've done many, many times. 
Um, so that's why I think it's so important. And it's also because then you can capture the variability, right? Like aging is variable, fundamentally variable. Um, and, you know, we can talk about personalized medicine, da, 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 but at a high level of preventative, that's going to be very, very difficult from an economic perspective and everything you talk about. So really what can we find that are generalized mechanisms by which we and our dogs pathologically over time that on average will extend the healthy lifespan? Like what is the statin for aging, right? The drug that the majority of older Americans take. I'm sorry, I probably took that away from you. No, that's exactly um, what my next question was going to be. I, I was yeah. going to frame it a bit differently, which is that, um, I mean, you, you got to exactly where I was going, but the way I was going to frame it was, it seems like dog science can spill over to inform human science and human science can spill over to inform dog science. And one way, one conclusion you can draw from that is, well, what is the category of life extension that we've had the most success with humans that we could apply to dogs? And to my mind, heart disease and cardiovascular disease is probably right up there with the disease that we have had the most breakthrough medicines in the last 50 years. Statins, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors, um, I don't know if I got the, um, the consonants there correctly, but you know, certain kind of hormone inhibitors that can, um, uh, that can also affect cardio cardiovascular health. Um, why aren't we just giving our dogs statins? I mean, if is is the reason that the cardiovascular diseases that they have just are not anything like the cardiovascular diseases that humans have because they don't smoke, they don't eat our food, they it's just an entirely different diet and lifestyle, uh, even though we share a house. Yeah, basically, yeah, dogs do get certain forms of cardiovascular disease, but it's not it generally is not like arterial clogging that leads and you know cholesterol. Uh, depositions and things like that it generally is more like you know disorders with like murmurs right and disorders with how the heart like pumps blood um that's mechanistically it's, it's aging related but it's mechanistically very different last questions are about sort of the the culture of life extension and some of the reactions to i mean the huge news that came out you, you guys were the cover of you know wired huge story in the new york times um about the fda's uh, i want to make sure i get the uh, uh, the announcement exactly right the fda's uh, announcement of reasonable expectation of effectiveness what's been the reaction like in in your space uh, have the re has the reaction from dog owners been mostly <laughs> just unbridled excitement like give me these pills Unleashed. immediately has, uh, there we go <laughs> well done or, or or has there been also like sort of this undercurrent of, you know, we're playing God with our dog and there seems like, I, I feel from a naturalistic standpoint that there's something not right about that. Because I, you know, you look at cultural representations of life extension and in, in almost every single movie, I think you and I have talked about this before, but in almost every single movie, the character seeking to like see seeking eternal life, which is not what you're seeking, but seeking something like a longer life tends to be evil, right? It's either like a, an experiment gone bad, like Frankenstein, or it's like a Thanos situation where it's like, I, you know, I want to live forever. Um, you know, good people in, in a lot of like cultural representations of, of life and disease are supposed to, you know, live with this sort of symbiotic and Zen relationship with the inevitability of, of, of death. So I wonder what the portfolio of unbridled, unleashed, Aha, excitement has been versus how much sort of um, uncomfortable skepticism has there been about this kind of project? I would say, so, so far, I would say it's almost, it's like 90 to 95% excitement, especially when it comes from dog owners, especially when it comes from people who have lost the dog, um, veterinarians. I mean, our, we were at a, a veterinary conference the week after we announced it and literally got swarmed. 
Like we had one of the smallest booths. <laughs> um, and it was just like absolutely like overflowing with veterinarians the entire time. So I think there's a lot of excitement there. Um, I think the broader community, some of the tenors of the things we've heard is like, oh, is it ethical? Can the dog consent? And I think the way I tend to think about this stuff is just sub out lifespan extension and put in cancer, right? Like, oh, can the dog consent to cancer treatment? Can the dog, um, you know, is it messing with nature if we treat our dog's cancer? Right? Like in all these things, I'd be like, of course, no. Right? Like, of course, you should, you know, if you have the financial means, you know, treat your dog. In fact, I'll even say like, in some ways, like my, my previous dog, Wolfie, passed away of cancer. And her, I was like freaking out, right? So she got, she had breast cancer. I got her a mastectomy and all these things. And honestly, it was so bad for her. Like she was in so much pain. That with my my current dog, Della, who unfortunately also has cancer, I decided like, I'm just not going to intervene this time because I just like, couldn't like do that. And that was just like a personal decision I had in the stage, you know, I got these dogs when they were very old. So they had the disease for a while. So there wasn't like a lot to do. Um, but I would say that is much more like, you know, we don't societally question that. So we should not also question an idea of a much safer drug that doesn't that doesn't do really anything but taste good to the dog. There's no like negative impact the dog has to keep them healthier longer. But I think it's inherent that people question it because of course we do, right? Like I think in some ways culturally we have like pretty negative feelings about medicine. I think the whole COVID fiasco really brought this out. And that's one of the things I'm really excited about is, you know, can we actually make people's relationship with medicine and with new drugs more positive, right? Where the drug is accessible. It's, you know, as safe as, you know, we reasonably can hope for it to be. It's for something positive. It's keep your healthy dog healthy longer. Um, and it's something where, you know, I don't want to at all use the word like magical is the wrong word, but like, how can we bring this like, you know, this, I, I try to learn a lot and borrow a lot from like, the right aspects of tech and consumer and this idea of like, how do we make this experience positive? And that encourages people to learn more about science and get excited about medicine development and get excited about healthcare in a way that I think we're really lacking here. Um, so long story short, I'm expecting more, like more like controversy, so to speak. But I think I feel very confident that we're on the right side of what we're trying to do if we continue in the tenets that we've held today. Um, and... I'm excited to kind of hopefully like responsibly help bring a, a better framework to how we think about medicine. Celine Halewa, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Baroldi. We've got new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. If you like what you're hearing, give us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For feedback and episode suggestions, email us at plainenglish at spotify.com. 